Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. To my American listeners, I hope you're having a nice, relaxing Thanksgiving week. And for those of you that did Black Friday shopping, I hope you survived. I am not a big fan of shopping or crowds, so it sounds like a nightmare to me, but I know that some people love it. Well, I got a new studio set up for recording, so I hope the sound quality is a little bit better. I did just recently read some of my reviews, and there were one or two that commented on poor sound quality, so my apologies, and hopefully this sounds better. I also wanted to thank you guys that left me a nice five-star review. There were several of you. Thank you so much. You don't know how great that is for a podcaster to see. It just really means a lot to us. As usual, this show is brought to you by my wonderful patrons. If you would like to become a patron of the show, visit patreon.com slash midnightsunmurder. There are a few different perks you can get. You'll be getting some goodies in the mail for me, and I'll definitely be sending out some extra stuff for Christmas. So if you sign up by December 15th, you can get in on that. And if you'd like to support the show in a different way, you can check out my partner companies that I have some promotions going with right now. There will be links in the show notes, and I've got some promotions going with Blue Apron and Audible. So check those out. You'll be getting something great, and you'll be supporting the show. It's very easy, and I greatly appreciate it. I'd like to eventually make this my full-time job, and you guys are definitely really instrumental in helping me make that happen. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for leaving reviews. And of course, thanks for being patrons. Lastly, before we get into tonight's case... I like to share promos up top from other podcasts that I think my listeners might want to listen to as well. So if you're interested in trading those with me, you can drop me an email at midnightsunmurder at gmail. And tonight I have a promo for you guys from a really unique little true crime podcast called Murder Mile. Hi, I'm Michael host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018, is based on my five-star rated guided walk and features more than 300 untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, old cases through a fresh pair of ears, and classic cases with a twist. All researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favourite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening, and stay safe. So if you guys are in the market for a new crime podcast, you should definitely subscribe. Murder Mile's unique. He has a wonderful narration voice and he's incredibly well-informed. I love it. With all of that out of the way, let's go ahead and get back into 
the case of serial killer Joshua Wade. This is the second part in a two-part series, so if you haven't listened to episode 16 about Della Brown, you may just want to turn this off and go give that one a listen first. By Tuesday evening, August 7th, 2007, friends of 52-year-old psychiatric nurse Mindy Schloss were getting extremely concerned. Mindy had several extremely close friends that were more like family to her. And the previous Sunday, she was supposed to have boarded a plane to fly up to Fairbanks to work for a week as she did quite regularly. However, she had never shown up in Fairbanks and no one had been able to get a hold of her since. An extremely close friend of hers named Kathy Hodges was supposed to have met her up in Fairbanks where they worked together. But when Mindy didn't show up, she began to get extremely nervous. After about a day of trying to call Mindy and trying to contact other people to see if they knew where she would be, she called the police who said that she would have to wait 48 hours to file a missing persons report. Since Mindy was extremely reliable and had scheduled several appointments with patients in Fairbanks that week, Kathy just knew in her heart that something was very wrong. So rather than wait 48 hours, she got in her car in Fairbanks and began driving the 360 miles down to Anchorage so she could check out Mindy's condo for herself. At the same time, another good friend of Mindy's had noticed something was amiss. She had a good friend named Jerry that regularly took care of her cat while she was working up in Fairbanks. She had showed up at Mindy's condo that Monday as scheduled to feed the cat and was a little taken aback by what she found. When she first arrived, she noticed that the doorknob on the front door was extremely loose. She knew that Mindy would never have left it like that since it made it really easy to break in. So while there, she found a screwdriver and fixed it for her. And when she entered the condo itself, she became even more worried. There were dirty dishes piled in the sink and other random items sitting out on the kitchen counter and the dining room table. Overall, the condo just didn't look right. Mindy was known for being extremely fastidious and tidy. And Jerry knew her well enough to know that she would never have gone to bed or have gone out of town leaving the condo in that state. Especially, she never would have left dirty dishes piled in the sink while going out of town for a week. Jerry had rarely seen the condo look anything other than incredibly clean and put together. So she was starting to get nervous as well. Years earlier, both of Mindy's parents had passed away And at that time, when she became friends with Jerry, 
Even though she was not much older than her, she became sort of like a surrogate mother to Mindy. They had spent a lot of time together when they both worked at the Epidemiology Center of Alaska, traveling to various villages throughout the state, working where there were disease outbreaks. And during that time, they had gotten to know each other incredibly well and had a very close bond. And Jerry just knew with her gut instinct that something didn't look right. After contacting other friends of hers and realizing that no one had heard from her since Friday, she got even more worried and contacted the police. Sergeant Pablo Paez of the Anchorage Police Department met her at the condo on Tuesday and listened as she explained everything that seemed out of the ordinary about the condo. After looking around, he agreed that it did seem a little odd, and while looking through the condo, he came across some banking information of hers, and he decided to dig into her online bank account and see if there had been any transactions over the weekend that might lead him to her. While there, he also canvassed her neighborhood and ended up speaking to a neighbor of hers that had actually seen her red Acura pulling into her garage very early on Saturday morning, but the neighbor hadn't caught a glimpse of who was driving it. After doing a little bit more digging and talking to some of her friends, Sergeant Paez found that the last person known to have seen Mindy was a contractor who had met with her on Friday evening to discuss some renovations she wanted done in her condo. He managed to track down the contractor and questioned him. He said that when he spoke with Mindy, she seemed completely normal and in a fine mood and didn't seem worried or anxious about anything. And of course, he said he had absolutely no idea what might have happened to her later in the weekend and freely offered a DNA sample just in case. When Sergeant Paez began going through her banking records, a couple of transactions jumped out at him right away. On both Saturday morning and Sunday morning, there had been ATM withdrawals at two different banks from her account in the amount of $500. The first one was at a Wells Fargo that was just a couple of blocks from her condo. And when he tracked down the surveillance footage, he could see right away that it was obviously not Mindy doing the transaction. It was a stocky man wearing dark clothing and a backpack with a bandana over the bottom half of his face. However, for a split second during the transaction, he had briefly adjusted the bandana and revealed his face. He made a screenshot of it and showed the picture to Mindy's friends asking if they recognized the man and none of them had any idea who he could be. At the Sunday morning withdrawal, which was at a different bank several miles away, the footage revealed that it was the same person doing that withdrawal as at the first one. This time, however, the sergeant struck evidentiary gold. There was another withdrawal just a few minutes after the one from Mindy's account. 
They tracked down this person who had done that withdrawal and questioned him. Not only had he seen the person using Mindy's card, he had actually seen him without his bandana on and had made small talk with him. It turned out that whoever had been using Mindy's bank card had accidentally left it in the machine so long that the machine wouldn't give the card back. He was agitated and the guy that was doing a withdrawal after him talked to him for a few minutes about it. All in all, the person who had stolen Mindy's bank card had gotten a grand total of $1,000 out of her extremely healthy bank account. The man who had spoken to the person with Mindy's bank card was able to give a very good physical description of this person of interest. He described him as five foot ten white man with spiky brown hair who appeared to be approximately in his mid to late twenties. It was somewhat of a generic description, but it was a place to start. Just a few days later, an acquaintance of Mindy's just so happened to spot her missing red Acura parked in an employee parking lot at the airport. There was surveillance footage of the parking lot and they could clearly see that it was the same person using her bank card. He had pulled up, parked the vehicle, and walked away from it. Law enforcement was happy that they had this breakthrough in the case, but they were also extremely worried that they might find Mindy's body in the car. When they went to look at it, they did not find her body, but they did find other evidence that gave them a foreboding feeling. All of the items that she would have taken with her to travel to Fairbanks were in the trunk of the car, including her purse and her luggage. There were several cigarette butts by the driver's seat, and Mendy's friends knew that she didn't smoke and never had smoked. And most chillingly, in the back seat, there was a footprint on one of the doors that made it appear as though someone had been laying in the back seat, kicking at the door. The case had just taken a dark turn. Later that week, a neighbor of Mindy's named Kathy came to the police with a creepy story. She said that just a day prior, she had heard a knock at the door and when she answered it, there was a young man on her doorstep that she recognized as being a frequent house guest of another house on their street. He looked angry and she was definitely off put by this because she had never spoken to him. He basically told her, if the cops come and question you, don't tell them where I live. She had no real idea what he was talking about and he just repeated that point a few times and she got him off of her doorstep as quickly as possible. Later that night, she was up late and she thought she heard a noise on her front porch. She crept to the door and peeped out the peephole. She saw the same guy standing on her front porch, motionless in front of the door, but it didn't appear as though he was trying to knock on the door or anything. He was just standing there, silently immobile. 
and he stayed there for minutes as she looked out at him. She honestly had no idea what he was planning to do and was becoming terrified. Finally, after what felt like eternity, he rang the doorbell and walked off. It had scared her so badly that she knew she had to tell the police as soon as possible. She didn't know who he was, she only recognized him, but she told police that he was frequently over at another neighbor's house, a house that the police actually were well acquainted with. It was populated mostly with teenagers that frequently threw loud parties and often had the cops called to come break them up. The police went by this house a couple different times and questioned those that were there. They knew that there were often transient people staying there and couch surfers, so they wanted to question as many of their acquaintances as possible. It took a couple of tries, but eventually one of their friends finally revealed that there actually was another person that was living at the house and it was 25-year-old Joshua Wade. Law enforcement immediately knew this was unlikely to end happily. Joshua Wade was infamous throughout Anchorage, and especially with law enforcement. It had only been a few years since the Della Brown murder trial that had been exhaustively covered in the local media, and many in the community and pretty much all law enforcement believed that he had already gotten away with murder. They wasted no time in getting the FBI involved. After the Della Brown murder trial ended, Joshua Wade had spent several years in prison for his one conviction from that trial, which was related to evidence tampering. I couldn't find an exact number of years that he spent, but it appears as though he was out by 2005 because he was charged with a domestic violence that year. So he was nowhere close to serving even the whole six and a half year prison sentence related to the murder. And I couldn't find a date, but it appears that he finally got out of prison after this second charge, less than a year before Mindy went missing. It seems as though he had been flying under the radar and while he was living with his friends, he wasn't on the lease or anything. And after the detectives had gone by his residence a few times, someone actually tipped him off that police now knew where he lived and were looking for him. He didn't want to risk going back to the house and having the police track him down. So at this point, he was essentially homeless and wanted for questioning by the police. He was gonna try to evade the police as long as he could. Meanwhile, law enforcement had gotten a warrant to search the house where he'd been living, and in his room, they found clothing, which matched that worn by the person on the ATM surveillance footage, and they found a receipt for $500 ATM withdrawal, which matched the time and location of the one they had seen on their footage. They also found a gold watch, which her friends recognized as belonging to Mindy. As they looked around his room, they realized that from his bedroom window, he had a direct view of Mindy's living room. 
They also saw two books on his nightstand that he had been reading, one of which was about a fictional serial killer, and the other one, well, obviously it was Harry Potter. By this time, Mindy had been missing for a couple of weeks, and both law enforcement and her close friends were rapidly losing hope that she would be found alive, if at all. Her friends and many volunteers had spent long hours searching local parks and other wooded areas, but other than finding the car, they hadn't found any other evidence. When the FBI got involved, they decided to bring tracking dogs and cadaver dogs to aid in the investigation. The tracking dog, using scent extracted from Mindy's car, was taken to the ATM where the first withdrawal had occurred. After just a few minutes, the dog led law enforcement a few blocks down the road right back to Mindy's front door. And after a couple of seconds, it led them to the front door of the house where Josh had been living. The cadaver dog was taken into his room and it reacted strongly to a few items of his clothing, indicating that he had recently been near a dead body. The scent dog was taken to the second ATM, which was, as I said, miles away, and it led law enforcement all the way back to Mindy's condo via a bike trail. Meanwhile, Josh had been spending his time with a young female friend of his who was letting him sleep in her car and was driving him to various places that he needed to go. She knew that he had been a suspect in a previous murder, but didn't care, and she was unaware that he was a suspect currently in a woman's disappearance. When the picture from the first ATM was shared on the news, this young friend of his immediately recognized him, as did an ex-girlfriend of his named Lisa. Strangely enough, Lisa was actually part Alaska Native, which I find odd because he had always talked about how much he hated Alaska Natives and had told all of his friends, but he had been passionately in love with Lisa. And both women, upon recognizing the photo, immediately decided they had to do the right thing and go to the police. His young friend brought Josh's backpack to the detectives, and inside they found his cell phone, in which he had saved a four-digit number, which they immediately recognized as being Mindy's ATM code. By the time the women had come forward to the police, it had been almost a month since Mindy had gone missing. They had now been searching for Josh for a couple of weeks, but still had no idea where he could be. They had followed up on hundreds of tips and questioned all of his known associates, but couldn't figure out where he could be. But finally, now that they had these two women that were 100% sure that it was him in the ATM footage, they decided to go public in the media and announce him as their prime suspect. A few days after the story ran, his young friend came outside and saw that Josh was at her house. He was looking very angry and demanding that she give his backpack to him and telling her that she had to give him a ride to Wasilla, which is a smaller town about 40 miles north of Anchorage. She panicked and didn't know what to do, but she was able to surreptitiously contact the police 
who quickly dispatched a SWAT team. However, before they could show up, he somehow realized that she had ratted on him and took off running. She tried following him in her car as best as she could and saw that he had run into an apartment building. He was able to break into one of the apartment units, which actually turned out to be the apartment of a female acquaintance of his, but it's unclear if this was intentional or if it was just a coincidence. Nevertheless, he decided to hold her hostage. However, he didn't realize that her brother also lived there and he managed to escape and alert the police to where he was and soon the SWAT team was surrounding the building. Thus began a bizarre standoff, during which Josh began chugging all of the liquor that was in the apartment and turned up music really loudly and had a one-person party. However, after about an hour or two, he got tired of this and decided to surrender to the police. Thankfully, the girl that lived there was left unharmed and the only damage done was to her liquor supply. After one of the biggest manhunts in Alaska history, they finally had their prime suspect. We're going to take a brief break to hear a word from our sponsor for this episode, Poshmark. Once Josh was in custody and taken to the interrogation room, he refused to speak or answer any questions or really do anything at all. He essentially just sat there silently. At that time, law enforcement actually only had enough information to charge him for bank fraud from using Mindy's bank card. Since she had not been found, there was no way of charging him with kidnapping or murder. However, since the bank fraud had occurred at a federal bank, it could now be raised to the federal level, and it was. They knew that if they got to the point where they were also charging him with murder, it could actually turn into a death penalty case at the federal level. Alaska has never had the death penalty, but with the federal charges involved, the death penalty could now be on the table and could be a useful bargaining tool. For the fraud charges alone, he was looking at a possible 30-year sentence despite the relatively minor amount of $1,000. Just a few days after his first hearing for the fraud charges, on September 13, 2007, a utilities worker in Wasilla stumbled across a decomposed body in the woods just a few hundred yards from a road. The body was that of a petite female wearing only a bathrobe. Police tentatively identified it as being that of Mindy, and this was based upon some unique jewelry that was found with the body. The long search for Mindy Schloss had ended tragically, but thankfully her killer was already in custody and would never get the chance to hurt another woman. One of the detectives on the case, Detective Pernew, decided to drive to the house of Mindy's ex, Bob. She had maintained a very close friendship with him after they broke up, and the detective wanted to tell him in person that they believed that they had found the body of Mindy so that he wouldn't have to find out from the news. 
She then offered to take Bob over to Mindy's close friend Jerry's house so they could both tell her in person and be there to provide some emotional support. It's things like this that really give me so much respect for homicide detectives that are able to see the absolute worst of humanity, yet still maintain their own sense of humanity. An autopsy on the remains was soon performed, and it was conclusively proven that this was the body of Mindy Schloss. She was too decomposed to fully say if she had been sexually assaulted, but they had actually previously found a couple of pubic hairs in her living room, which were later identified as being Josh Wade's. So they thought it very probable that he had sexually assaulted her. And some of his friends would later come forward and say that he'd actually talked about Mindy quite a bit and how he really had the hots for her and wanted to sleep with her. And it seemed as though he had made this fantasy come true in the most disturbing way. They also found during the autopsy that she had died as the result of one gunshot wound to the head. It appeared as though Josh was going to be waiting for quite a while for his trial while his lawyer and the prosecution prepared for a possible death penalty trial. Strangely enough, his ex-girlfriend Lisa, who had gone to the police to identify him, began visiting him in prison and the two ended up getting back together. He managed to convince her to marry him and the ceremony took place over the phone. Law enforcement suspected he had done this so that she could not be compelled to testify against him. They had previously had a very tumultuous relationship. She was actually nearly two decades older than him, and he had actually previously dated her daughter. She had taken a restraining order out on him during their prior relationship, but now that he was in prison, it appeared that they were back on track. And when he was transferred to a prison in Seattle, she picked up and moved from Anchorage down to Seattle so she could be near him. After getting back together with Josh, she had begun trying to kind of evade the police and seemed like she didn't want to testify anymore now that she had married him. Detectives knew that she was an important witness because she could testify to his violent tendencies and had identified him in the ATM footage. After speaking with her in person, the detectives were able to convince her that testifying against him was the right thing to do, and she finally agreed that it was. This turned out to be an incredibly important strategic move on the part of the detectives because Lisa admitted to them that he had actually given her a complete confession regarding the events on the night that Mindy died. He had told her that he had originally decided to break into Mindy's house and rob her, but was surprised to find her home and still awake, so he panicked and decided to tie her up and then returned to his home to get his gun. He had apparently decided that 
now that she had seen his face, he would now have to kill her. He said he had put her in the back of her own car and driven the hour out to Wasilla, where he walked her into the woods, had her kneel down, and then shot her in the back of the head, execution style. It seems likely that many of these details are actually accurate, but law enforcement and myself believe that his main intention in going to break into her house was to sexually assault her. Murders committed with a gun are often seen as being less brutal, especially an execution-style murder like this because it's over so quickly. But in a way, this crime was beyond brutal. The drive that he took her on takes an hour. And during that time, she was in the back of her own car, bound, kicking at the door, and knowing she was likely being driven to her grave. On the way, he had actually stopped at the first ATM near her house and withdrawn money while she was in the back of the car. She was yelling, crying, rape, help, call the police. And later a witness came forward that said they had actually witnessed this and heard a woman yelling this, but had done nothing. I can't really explain how angry that makes me. It's just terrible. But now that they had Lisa back on their side and she had a basic confession from him, as well as having found Mindy's body, he was finally charged with first degree murder and carjacking in the spring of 2008. However, a few more years would go by with him sitting in prison before his case progressed any further. During that time period, Josh got in at least one very violent altercation with another inmate whom he was trying to choke. And in 2009, a lawsuit was brought against the correctional facility where he was living, stating that Joshua Wade had sexually assaulted another male inmate and that the facility hadn't done enough to protect the victim from this violent offender. That lawsuit was still pending as of 2013 and I could not find any further information on it. By 2010, it had become very clear to everyone involved that this was definitely going to be a death penalty case. So with that knowledge, Josh was offered a plea deal in which he would plead guilty to the murder of Mindy and the death penalty would be taken off the table and he would automatically have life in prison without the possibility of parole. At the hearing regarding the plea, he also stated for the first time that as part of the deal, he was also pleading guilty to the murder of Della Brown. Her mother, Daisy, had promised to go to every court date regarding Mindy's murder so that she could continue to represent her daughter in any way that she could. So finally at this plea hearing, after 10 years, she felt like she had gotten some justice for her daughter. And she was finally able to look him in the eye and hear him admit guilt to her daughter's murder. In the decades since Della had been murdered, Daisy's life had become progressively worse. She was continuously racked with guilt over giving her daughter up for adoption. 
and not being able to protect her from this monster. And of course, the not guilty verdict at the first trial had nearly broken her. She had been suffering from extreme depression and PTSD from losing her daughter in such a brutal fashion. And having finally had the chance to hear him admit guilt and know that he was going to prison for the rest of his life must have been pure elation. And at the hearing, Josh actually showed a glimmer of humanity and a little bit of self-awareness. He read aloud an apology letter for his crimes, and he stated that while a few years of sexual abuse as a young child had tainted his worldview and led him towards a life of crime, he accepted that the decisions he had made were entirely made of his own free will. He expressed hope that he could use the rest of his life in prison to become a better person. Whether or not he believed this is debatable, but based upon his behavior throughout all of his hearings and later in prison, it's hard to say. Throughout many of his hearings, he had been extremely combative towards the prosecution and even the judge. And he absolutely refused to accept the label of being a sexual predator. Despite the brutality of the murders he had committed, he was actually more ashamed of the sexual aspect of the crimes. At one point in court, he loudly told the judge that he didn't only target women and he hadn't only murdered women, but it would be a while before it would become known what he meant by that. At that same hearing, the judge told Josh that he was the worst murderer he had ever come across in his several decades long career. When the news hit the media that he had admitted guilt in Della's murder, several jurors from the original trial came forward expressing feelings of guilt that they had decided not guilty. However, there were a few obstinate ones that said that they did not regret the not guilty verdict, and even though they fully believed he was guilty, they thought that poor police work had made it so that the prosecution could not prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I personally have to wonder what kind of evidence would they need to actually decide that someone was guilty. Also, I can't really imagine after knowing that he had killed another person, deciding to come forward and talk to the news and adamantly state how you didn't regret letting him out into the public to murder again. It's just unbelievable. It would also be revealed that the original prosecutor who had stepped down partway through the first trial had actually been battling alcoholism and had been losing. She had been drinking during the day at the trial and she actually ended up dying just a few years later of liver failure in her late 50s. The younger and less experienced prosecutors that had stepped in for her had no experience with murder trials and when they came on board they realized that the original prosecutor had really 
not done a huge portion of the things that should have been done by trial, such as testing various pieces of evidence, among other things. So they spent the whole trial trying to catch up and do all of these very important things, but could never quite make it. I feel like it should have been a mistrial, but I'm not a lawyer, so I, I don't know how it works. Joshua's dad actually came forward and spoke to the media as well. He admitted that he had felt horrible guilt ever since the not guilty verdict in the Della Brown trial. He revealed that on the night of Della's murder, Joshua had come home and implied that he had hurt someone really badly, and his father told him that he better get rid of the evidence, and he had gone on to refuse to testify against his son at the trial. He greatly regretted the decision and stated that he believed that Josh had likely killed many other women. His older sister actually gave an interview as well. She said that one time when they were teenagers, Josh had told her that he had murdered a store clerk. At the time, she thought he was just making a dark joke, but in hindsight wondered if his story had a glimmer of truth to it. However, no cold case has been linked to this possible crime. And despite having lived through the same childhood as him with very similar experiences, she had grown up to be a kind and caring individual who worked as a care provider for the elderly and who was married with children. Four years after accepting the plea deal, in 2014, Josh would make another confession. He had agreed to a deal in which he admitted guilt in three more murders in exchange for transfer to an out-of-state prison. He was so infamous in the Alaska criminal justice system that he had been kept in solitary away from the general population for his own safety. He admitted guilt in killing John Martin, aged 38, in 1994, when Josh would have been only 14. Martin had been shot to death on a local bike trail. He also admitted to the murder of Henry Ongtawasruk, aged 30, in 1999, who was found strangled in a motel room. The last man he claimed to have killed is an unknown victim that was allegedly with Della on the night of her murder. Josh said that he had beaten him up and then driven him in the trunk of his car out to Wasilla and shot him. A search was eventually conducted where he said that he had left the man's body, but no evidence was ever found, and it's unclear whether the veracity of these claims can be confirmed. However, it is notable that the first two men are still listed as unsolved homicides on Anchorage Crime Stoppers. At the beginning of episode 16, the first part of this story, I described the possible victims that he may have been involved with. While it seems unlikely that he killed all of them, it's very believable that he killed at least one of them. Namely, Michelle Foster Butler. He had spoken about the crime many times and had even talked about it while talking to his friends that were wired. At one point during his incarceration, 
He was, coincidentally, in the same facility as Michelle's husband. And he had heard from other inmates that Josh had been going around bragging about how he had raped and killed Michelle. However, since law enforcement knew that he was locked up for good, they declined to spend more taxpayer money in pursuing future charges on him. So it seems as though any of those cases he may have been involved with will just continue to sit on the list of cold cases, I guess, until something changes. That is all I've got on this human sack of garbage, but I'll be interested to see if he comes forward with any future confessions, because I know that he's got more skeletons in that closet. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, bye-bye. Thank you.